So, I think we want to be normal. So when parents take their baby to a a two-week or a a three-month well check, they're just hoping everything's normal. Height, weight, is it within range? Heartbeat, breathing, range of motion, five fingers and toes still, right? Is everything just normal? As we get older, we have standardized tests, so we hope we get a normal grade on those tests. We think about our jobs, annual reviews. Are, are we meeting expectations? Are we, are we fitting into what our employer wants and respects and expects? Even rebels, even rebels want to be normal. They want to be normal among the rebels, Right? This is true in our lives as Christians as well. I bet one thing everyone in this room wants to know at times is, am I normal? Is what I'm going through normal? Are my challenges normal? Is this this hard for other Christians or am I just an outlier? Am I doing okay? Like, really? Am I doing okay? Or is something way off? And how do I know if something's way off? Like, by what standard do I judge? And maybe even more importantly, if something is off, what do I do? How do I address it? Ephesians gives us the answer to all of these questions. As we wrap up the book of Ephesians that we've been in for 18 weeks, I hope you see that Ephesians is a book particularly concerned with the formation of Christian thinking and living. Unlike many other books in the New Testament, Ephesians actually isn't written to address a specific situation. So this is not like Corinthians, where Paul's dealing with spiritual pride and heinous sin. This isn't like the pastoral epistles, 1st and 2nd Timothy, Titus, where Paul's instructing Timothy on the proper ordering and structuring of church. This isn't like Philippians, addressed to a church under persecution and division is beginning to creep in. This isn't like the book of Hebrews, written to Christians on the brink of turning away from their faith. Ephesians is a circular letter. It's written to various churches in and around Ephesus. And it's wonderfully general in nature, formative in nature, presenting a positive picture of maybe what we should just call the normal Christian life. So let's look at it. I have five points for you this morning, kind of scattered throughout the book of Ephesians. If you're a note taker or like to know where we are and where we're going, you can open up your bulletin. You'll see an outline of the sermon there. And I want to invite you to open up to Ephesians chapter 1 and we're just going to start by reading verses 3 through 14. Ephesians 1 verses 3 through 14. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ 
who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. In Him, We have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will according to His purpose, which He set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him, things in heaven and things on earth. In Him we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will, so that we who are the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of His glory. In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. This is jubilant praise to God. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, verse 1. But it's praise to God for all the blessings that He has actually given to us. Blessed be God who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. The very first thing Paul says is, Christian, you are blessed. So have you ever been to a buffet where every single option looked amazing, perfectly cooked and it's all just there for you to enjoy you just kind of look at it and you see the you know the whatever you want to call it the heat just wafting and you're like "Ah, that's this this is a buffet of spiritual blessings more wonderful and more numerous than we can possibly imagine. Just look at the feasting items on this table. We have been chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. Before the world ever was. Before your parents were born. Your grandparents Before he created Adam and Eve, God determined to set his eternal and saving love upon you in Jesus Christ. He determined that through Christ you would be holy and blameless. He determined that although like your father Adam, you would sin and stray and through your sin become fatherless and hopeless and destined for destruction, he determined to adopt you. He determined to call you by name. Sarah, come to me. Dean, come to me. Natasha, come to me. Eric, come to me. And so you came. And we have redemption. We sold ourselves into sin, but God has brought us back through the blood of Christ. We have an inheritance. Not an earthly inheritance that can pass away like the warmth of summer, but an internal inheritance. 
an inheritance imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, Peter says, kept in heaven for you. We have the Holy Spirit as a sign and a seal that we belong to God, that we are His, that He will keep us and fulfill all He's promised to us. We have all this. All this from the, from the hand of a God who works all things according to the counsel of His will. Our God does not make strategic or diplomatic mistakes. He does not invest in stocks that end up crashing. He is not hoping against hope that his plans will succeed and hoping that his enemies do not outwit him. Every purpose of his will will succeed. Every purpose of his will will be carried out. All things are under his sovereign and providential hand. Praise God. Would you just step back and take a look for a second? Christian, you are blessed. You are blessed in Christ. Eternally blessed. Blessed with the favor and love of God. Notice what isn't the blessing. Our financial position. Our housing situation. Our kids' spiritual condition. Our health. Our relationships, our nation's health and vitality, even our physical safety and security. The the striking reality of the blessings Paul is absolutely blown away by is that they are all beyond the horizon of the here and now. Do you see that? These blessings aren't anything that you can particularly point to in a conversation with a co-worker and say, yes, I'm blessed. These are invisible blessings, in a sense. And these things are true regardless of wherever you find yourself. These things are true in the midst of the firestorm at work. These things are true in the midst of a loved one who's walked away from Christ. These things are true in the midst of the cancer diagnosis. These things are true in the darkest hours. These things are true for our brothers and sisters in the latter verses of Hebrews 11. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy. How do you endure that type of thing? You keep an eye towards these blessings. You stay clear-eyed that the treasures you have in Christ are treasures that cannot be taken. Spiritual treasure. Gospel treasure. Forgiveness. Eternal life. And so this is a good diagnostic for us, isn't it? Let me just ask you a question. Are you blessed this morning, brothers and sisters? Are you blessed beyond your wildest imagination and hopes? Can you say, I am blessed beyond my wildest imagination and hopes? Can you say that with conviction? Can you wake up grateful and thankful? Can you go to bed grateful and thankful? Are you amazed at the grace and love of God in setting His love upon you? On sending His Son for you? 
in forgiving you, in sealing you with the Spirit, in writing you into His will to receive an eternal inheritance? If you can't, then you've got some business to do with the Lord. So maybe you've defined blessing in a way that the Bible's not defining it. If that's the case, you need to let the Bible define the terms, okay? We are blessed, and here are the blessings. Maybe you want to be blessed in ways that aren't listed here. And in a sense, that's just fine. It's fine to desire those things. The trouble is, and the trouble comes when we can't be content without them. The trouble comes when our hearts don't beat with thankfulness in their absence. And when this happens, really, it's a form of idolatry. What we're saying to God is, you are not enough. I have to have this. And the cure for this is repentance. Repentance and confession and trust in Jesus as enough. Maybe there's too much of the world in your heart. Maybe the thorns and thistles that Jesus warned us all about are just kind of growing up and slowly entangling you. Maybe you just need to step back. I'm shocked and amazed, frankly, at how often I just need a reset. I need a reset and I need a refresher in what's true. I need a reset. I need a refresher in these things. And maybe that's the case for you. The the enemy of your soul has a way of clouding your spiritual sight so that you don't see right. (laughs) So maybe you just need to take a step back right now and get it fixed in your mind. I am blessed because Christ is mine. Second, the normal Christian life is born again. So born again is a term we have, and it seems to have all sorts of meanings. If a baseball player had a bad year and he rebounds, you know, maybe, maybe it's said that he, he's born again. Or, or if a company's tanking and it finds its way back to competitiveness, it's, it's born again. This, this is not the biblical meaning of the word. According to Scripture, we are born... And we are born dead. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, 2-1. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, 2-4. What it means when Scripture calls us dead, it's a, it's a spiritual state that every single person is in when we're born. So we are born in Adam. So Adam is our father. And Adam's sin, way back in the Garden of Eden was credited to all of Adam's descendants. Theologians call this original sin. And so the truth of the matter is that we're born into this state of separation and alienation from God. We are born dead. And this deadness, this is at the root of our disinterest in Jesus. This deadness, this is at the root of our disinterest in the law of God. This this deadness, this is at the root of our interest in what God says is not good for us. This is why, in the words of 419, we give ourselves to sensuality and greedily practice impurity. And our final end, if we remain here, is hell. And so we are born dead. Which is why we need to be born again. 
And unlike how the term is popularly used, to be born again is not to turn over a new leaf. It's not to, it's not to, to reform, it's not to stop whatever it is that you're doing that isn't good and start doing what is good. Being born again is not anything having to do with moral or spiritual reformation. Being born again is a miracle. And God does this miracle. And what he does is he takes our eyes and he opens up our eyes to the glory of what he's done in Jesus Christ. Do you know how it starts? It starts with conviction of sin. This, friends, is where we become aware that we are dead. This is where the weight of our sin finally hits us and the consequences of our sin finally frightens us where the appropriateness of God's wrath finally seems not offensive to us or strange to us but right to us this is where we are finally humbled and we finally understand our real need forgiveness and then he reveals Christ to us This is where we become aware of God's love. That though He'd be right to judge us, He sent His Son to save us. That Jesus took on the cross the penalty we deserve. That He died and rose so that we can be forgiven. And God makes the promise of the Gospel crystal clear to us. Forgiveness is ours. New life is ours. Eternal life is ours if we turn from our sin and place our trust in Jesus Christ. And we do. By faith, we do. We turn from sin. We trust in His Son. We are forgiven. We are reconciled. We are alive. We were spiritually dead, but now we're alive. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, made us alive together with Christ. By grace are you saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. The normal Christian life is born again. Actually, I just have to take a step back and say, the only Christian life is born again. So are you born again? Some of you aren't. Some of you come week in and week out and you hear these truths and yet you aren't born again. Why not? Some of you are interested, but you haven't done saving business with God. If that's you, friend, what are you waiting for? Do you think you don't know enough? If you know that you're a sinner in desperate need of a Savior, if you know that Jesus offers to forgive those who trust in Him, then you know enough. Trust Christ. Turn to Christ. Do you think you have to feel a certain way? If you feel the weight of your sin, if you fear the wrath of God, If you want to be forgiven and if you want to follow and serve Jesus Christ, friend, then you feel enough. Turn to Christ. Trust in Christ. Are you afraid He won't receive you? 
Jesus says, For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life. Friend, if you come to Him in repentance and faith, He will not cast you out. Go to Him. Turn to Him. Trust in Him. Uh, Maybe you're thinking later. I'll come to Christ later. Listen, later is not promised. Life is not promised to be a steady stream flowing like the Lamoille River. You, you don't know your expiration date, and it could be tomorrow. Don't, don't sit on this. C- come to Christ. Come to Christ now. Are you thinking you can't be forgiven? Are you thinking that your sin is, is somehow beyond mercy? Friend, what sin is more powerful than the blood of Christ? Come now, says the Lord, though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Isaiah 1.18 Come and wash in the blood of the Lamb. And for those of you who are not interested, maybe those of you who have been drugged here and you're honestly hard-hearted towards Jesus Christ, so too have many who have gone before you. The Apostle Paul himself among them. But God showed mercy to him, and he offers you the same. Come to Christ. Turn to Christ. The normal Christian life is born again. Third, the normal Christian life is progress. So, John Bunyan's rich work that teaches us so much about the Christian life, what's its title? Pilgrim's Progress, right? This is a book about the Christian life. Christians are pilgrims. The world isn't our home. We're passing through. And Christians progress. We mature. We grow. Just like babies grow into children, grow into adults. So it is with us spiritually. I just want you to think for a second of how strange it would be if a child never grew. If at three years old, your baby looked the same as he did at three months old, that would be disturbing. If at 16 years old, he looked and acted like he did when he was six years old, something would be drastically wrong with that. And you know that. So too it is with the Christian life. The normal Christian life is progress. First, it's it's progress in theology. Now, theology means the study of God. Uh, Theology is a word that freaks people out, but theology isn't about academics or advanced degrees. Theology is about studying God, learning God, knowing God. The late R.C. Sproul said it well. He said, no Christian can avoid theology. Every Christian is a theologian. Perhaps not a theologian in the technical or professional sense, but a theologian nonetheless. The issue for Christians is not whether we are going to be theologians, but whether we are going to be good ones or bad ones. (laughs) You know, it's interesting. Paul doesn't begin the letter of Ephesians telling the Ephesians how they're to live or what they're to do. Did you notice that? He doesn't start with telling them to put off the old habits reflective of their life before Jesus and put on new habits reflective of their life in Jesus. He doesn't start with any of that. He starts with three chapters chock full of God. He starts with divine election before the foundation of the world. How do you like them apples? 
He starts with the Trinity. The Father, the Son, the Spirit, all identified in the first 14 verses. He starts off with with truths such as redemption and forgiveness and eternal inheritance. He starts off with the resurrection of Jesus, the exaltation of Jesus, the supremacy of Jesus over every power named in heaven and earth. He starts out with the new birth. He starts out with reconciliation with Jew and Gentile through the cross. And they're being brought together in the church. What is this? It's theology. Paul wants us to know God, who He is, what He's like, and what He has accomplished in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And this is not a dumbed-down child's play version of it. He just jumps right into the deep end, and he spends three whole chapters splashing and swimming around in virtually nothing having to do with the so what. In virtually nothing having to do with the practicalities of the Christian life. In virtually nothing having to do with live this way. It's all who God is and what He has done, not what we are to do. And He prays that we might grow in our theology. I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which He has called you, what are the riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of His power toward us who believe. Theology. Three chapters filled with theology, prayers that we might grow in theology. The normal Christian life is progress in theology. This makes total sense. Anytime you're interested in something or someone, you learn about that something or someone. You, you learn about that guy or girl you're interested in. You learn about that trade you're interested in. And as Christians, we learn about God. This is why I never tire of encouraging you to be students of the Word of God. This is why I give out books like candy to a five-year-old and you're like, another book? I'm like, yes, another book. This is why I preach for 45 minutes and it's not all focused on what's immediately applicable to your lives. Brothers and sisters, the normal Christian life is a life that beholds God. It's a life that grows deeper in the knowledge of Him. And for some of you, this is where you've gotten tripped up. For some of you, this is why you feel little love towards God. Little excitement towards God. Little interest in the things of God. It's because you've neglected this. When was the last time you opened your Bible? not in order to get some spiritual or emotional charge for the day, but because you want to know God more. See, sometimes we approach our Bibles and church and and just our relationship with God more broadly. Sometimes we approach these things in too utilitarian of a sense, like, what am I going to get out of this? How is this going to help me right now? How is this practical in my life right now? The first thing God wants you to do is just explore Him. 
know Him. Understand Him. It's not all about what you're to do. Brothers and sisters, if you're not growing in your knowledge of God, you're going to be stunted. Have you ever seen images of World War II prisoners of war? Bodies just wasted away for lack of nutrition and nourishment. That's, that's us if we neglect this truth. But the shame is that it's self-inflicted. There is no one keeping us from this but ourselves. So the normal Christian life is growth in theology. And the normal Christian life is growth in theology and practice. So Paul is not shy about going to the therefore or the so what. He's he's not disinterested in applying the truths of God's word to our lives. He just goes there after he's laid the gospel foundation. And so we have four through six, which are focused on our response to the gospel, right? Living in light of the knowledge of God. We get a hint of this in chapter two. And Paul tells us we're not saved by good works, but we are saved for good works. There is work for us to do. Christian life is a life with boots on the ground and our theology works its way out into our lives. And so we're commanded to walk worthy of our calling for one. We're commanded to grow up in every way into Christ for 15. We're not to walk like the Gentiles walk for 17. We're to put off our old self, our ways consistent with the life before Christ. We're to put on the new self, ways consistent with our new life in Christ, 424. Sexual immorality, all impurity, covetousness must not even be named among us, 55. Uh, we're to discern what is pleasing to the Lord, 510. We're to make the best use of time because the days are evil, 516. Fathers, you're to nurture your children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord, 6-4. On and on I could go, honestly, just read through 4 through 6 in a sitting. It is one ginormous, therefore. Okay? 1 through 3 is theology, 4 through 6 is application of theology. 1 through 3 is what God has done, 4 through 6 is what we're to do in response. And so interesting, even in this section... Over and over, Paul grounds our practice in the gospel. So Paul, brothers and sisters, Paul never wants us to lose sight of the cross. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself for us. 5-2. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. 5-25. Bond servants, obey your earthly masters as you would Christ, as bond servants of Christ. This is the normal Christian life. It is real progress in real life, and it is really grounded in the gospel. So again, this is a good diagnostic for us. Are you making progress? Are you making progress? Is your understanding of God growing? Is your life reflecting more and more the Word of God and the Son of God? If not, why not? Is it a lack of effort? It does take work, 
But God promises to give you the strength that you need. Is it a lack of hope? Some of you don't think you can change. Brother or sister, the spirit that raised Jesus from the dead lives in you. You can change. Is it a lack of repentance? Do you just not care right now? Well, God doesn't give you that option. Following Jesus means obeying Jesus. Chapters 4 through 6 aren't optional material. Number 4. The normal Christian life is church life. So people get all excited about all sorts of stuff, right? People identify themselves and attach themselves to all sorts of stuff. And you can usually figure out pretty quickly in any meaningful interaction what somebody's excited about. They're, they're about cars. So car magazines on the rack get their attention. The sound of an engine on the road turns their head. They're about guns. Every kind of gun. Come see my guns. Come shoot my guns. That's cool. They're about sports, and they invest their time in the hockey team. They're about photography, and the local artist guild is their passion. Well, for the Christian, Paul tells us what this should be for us is the church. The normal Christian life is church life. This is a book that centers itself upon the church. In chapter 2, Paul tells us Jews and Gentiles have been brought together through the gospel into the church. In chapter 3, Paul tells us it's God's will to declare the wisdom of God to the world through the church. In chapters 4 through 6, all of these exhortations, the context for them is the church. I, therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness and patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Pastors are given to the church to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ, 412. And these relational commands, all of them in 425 and following, they're all in the context of the church. Therefore, put away falsehood and let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. We're part of the same body, the body of Christ. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up the body of Christ. Be kind-hearted to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. And do not get drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. So, so even these commands given to households, husbands, wives, fathers, children, this has an eye towards the church because the household is the foundation of the church. And how will the church be unified if the household is not? And this armor, this armor we're to put on in chapter 6, we saw last week, it's all in the plural. This isn't an individual soldier envisioned here. It's a soldier with his brothers and sisters in the church. And so we've got business to do here. Do our lives revolve around the church? Is the church a passion for us? Do we view the church as another activity we have alongside a whole host of others? Or do we view the church as a central priority we have? This, this gets so practical. 
So when it comes to where we live, do we think about how far we'll be from the church, which makes it easier or harder to be involved there? Natasha was like, I did, right down the road. Cool. (laughs) When it comes to work, do we think about how our jobs will impact our lives at church? When it comes to activities, is, is church crowded out by other things? Are we hindered from attending, serving, loving, and discipling? Because we have so many plates in the air at the same time. I say none of this, brothers and sisters, to guilt you or to shame you. I say this because Jesus Christ loves the church, and so we want to love the church. We want to serve, we want to disciple, we want to give. If I could speak a pastoral word to you, sometimes a challenge here for for those of you who know that this is true, but you just don't feel like it's really true for you, sometimes it's a connection issue. So you don't feel particularly connected. You don't feel particularly known. Maybe you feel a bit on the outside. And so you kind of stay a little bit On the outside. I actually have to confess to you that I'm the pastor and sometimes I don't feel connected. Sometimes I don't feel known. And I don't say that for you to feel bad for me. I say that to say that everybody feels this way at one time or another. And the issue is, not do you feel this way, but what do you do about it? So if this is you, can I just suggest to you that the the plus one approach? This is actually from Kevin DeYoung and there's wisdom here. Here's the idea. The plus one approach is this. In addition to Sunday morning worship, pick one thing in the life of the church and be very committed to it. So if you aren't part of home groups, this year join one. Really. Like make that a priority on your schedule. If you don't attend men's prayer or women's prayer, take that up. If you've been thinking about it and you've been asked if you might be willing to serve in Awana, serve in Awana. If, if you don't feel connected here, then ask yourself, am I committed to coming every Sunday unless providentially hindered? And if the answer is no, then start there. And then move on to this plus one approach. Brothers, sisters, usually you don't feel connected because you haven't made the effort to connect consistently or just an aside (laughs) maybe you've had a run in with a couple of folks and instead of working it out you fade yourself out the answer to that is to work it out and to talk it through and finally the normal Christian life is war brothers and sisters the armor of God in chapter 6 shows us that our lives are going to be a struggle so not a struggle against flesh and blood, but against satanic involvement in our lives that seeks to derail us from all that is good and right and true. We have enemies, brothers and sisters. Make no mistake, Jesus defeated those enemies on the cross, but those enemies have yet to concede defeat. Those enemies are a threat, and those enemies threaten to undo us. And what this means is that the normal Christian life is going to be hard. Not universally hard, but sometimes hard. At times, often hard. 
And not always hard with the same intensity. Some things are just kind of hard. Some things are very hard. Whatever the case, for the Christian, hard is normal. So normal Christians, brothers and sisters, struggle in their battle against sin and lose sometimes. Normal Christians, brothers and sisters, struggle with assurance of salvation because the enemy of your soul wants to convince you that God doesn't love you, isn't for you, and you are not bound for heaven. Normal Christians feel like it's hard work to obey Jesus Christ because it is hard work to obey Jesus Christ. I wish it were easy. Anybody with me on that one? Yeah. But normal Christians are equipped to handle all of these things through the armor that we are provided. Take it up and fight. Take it up and engage. Take it up and advance. When it is all said and done, there is no weapon formed against us that will stand. You know why? Because Jesus is our captain. And because Jesus has conquered the grave. And because we belong to him, we will be victorious in him. What a joy that is. What a confidence booster that is. Brother, sister, God has given you everything you need to meet the challenges you face in your life. He does not send you out into life ill-equipped. He doesn't just promise you that it's going to be easy. It's not easy. War is not easy. But this war, the Christian life, it is for our good. Because through it we are shaped. And through it we are molded. And through it we are made to long for heaven, for home, for God's presence. So this is the normal Christian life. We are blessed, born again, characterized by progress, church life, and war. It's kind of a mixed bag, wouldn't you say? But it's good. And we will all say so in the coming day when we sing around the throne. So may these things increasingly and evermore be true in and through and for us. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you. We thank you for Jesus Christ, our captain, who promises to bring us home where we will be with you in a coming day. Father, thank you that you use ordinary means to accomplish extraordinary things. Thank you for a normal Christian life, a life that is not easy, but a life that you promise to sustain and to equip such that we will be with you and see your face. And we thank you for Jesus Christ who accomplished it all by his death, burial, and resurrection. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.